0: The following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians or People Too. Oh, Joyce, hey. um, we were just about to get to your intro. Yeah, <laughs> so you're you're one of the few guests who get to sit through their introduction.
1: Oh my! Uh-oh.
2: Yeah, and we were saying this is a this is a nice change of pace for us because, um, you know, you're you you're a historian and uh, obviously uh, an editor in chief. So uh, you know we're we're really excited about. Uh, getting to talk about the the mysterious world of of publishing um
1: <laughs> well i hope i can demystify it some for you yeah,
0: the very the very the very mystic world that that involves <laughs> ritual and sacrifice it does
1: and, you don't y'all don't know about that stuff
0: yeah. we try not to talk about all it. sorts of potions and, and what have you
2: so uh today we are talking to joyce harrison uh joyce is the editor-in-chief at the university press of kansas She has nearly 30 years of experience in the publishing industry, and she has done it all contracts, subsidiary rights, foreign rights, acquisitions and editor in chief. Joyce started as an assistant at the University of Chicago Press and has served as an acquisitions editor at the University of Michigan Press, the University of South Carolina Press, University of Tennessee Press. And the Kent State University Press. She was editor-in-chief at the University Press of Kentucky, and she took over the same role at the University Press of Kansas um, in 2016. And I'm, I'm hearing that uh, she's got 35 years, so uh, even, even more experience than, uh, than we thought.
0: Joyce, That's, that's you, such an editorial thing to do. Yeah, right? of course.
2: Right. I want she, everybody
1: to know how truly old I am.
2: She's got <laughs> to fix it right now. Um, so Joyce earned a BA in music with a concentration in music history at Towson, and she went on to earn an MA in musicology at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. Uh, before turning to publishing, she started a PhD program in music history and theory at the University of Chicago. So uh, she's obviously no slouch. Um, And Joyce is always willing to share her insights into the publishing industry, and she has participated in publishing panels at meetings of the American Historical Association, the Organization of American Historians, the Society for Military History, and the Southern Historical Association, Association, among others. Joyce is involved in service programs with the Association, Association of University Presses including the compilation of the Charlottesville curriculum reading list, um, and that came out in September 2017. Joyce is an amazing resource on the direction of military history, and when it comes to the publishing industry, uh, she has been there and done that, and so we are thrilled to, uh, to have Joyce on with us today. Welcome, Joyce.
1: Thank you, and thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here too.
2: You know Brian, right? I mean, you guys I have formally? not
1: met Brian. I'm getting to know Brian through the podcasts. Yeah, right. This is uh, you've read a couple manuscripts first, for us. Yeah, but
2: yeah. This is our first uh, face-to-face virtual encounter.
1: Yeah, it's good to meet you. It's good to meet last. you
2: as well. Yeah, I stalked you last night on the internet, coming up with questions. So uh, I feel like I know you. <laughs> I Uh-oh. know you. You know, I mean, it's all, this is always a little tricky because if people have academia dot uh, edu accounts. Um, you can, you can get a notification when someone is Googling your name. So I'm always worried that people are going to be, you know, be freaked out by the fact that I'm Googling them the night before looking, uh, you know, trying to come up with questions, but um, yeah, we've got some, we got some good stuff for you. So I I hope that uh, that it's fun for you.
1: Well, I'm sure it will be.
2: Joyce, I
0: just want you to know that my uh, weather app for Lawrence, Kansas right now says it's 32 degrees.
1: It was four when I left for work
0: this morning. That was nice. Uh, it you says it. the weather is out of your control, so just deal with it.
1: Right, that's that's the attitude. It's a very <laughs> kind of a Buddhist thing. It's it's out of your control. It's okay.
2: You you want a comparison here? I'm looking at mine, Statesboro, Georgia, sunny and 73 with a high of 75.
1: Oh, nice, nice. Yeah,
2: yeah it is. A well, good the day.
1: winters really aren't very bad here. I mean, I grew up in Maryland, and they're very similar. We get cold days, we get some snow, but it's it's not severe. So. It's we just kind of deal. Actually, we don't. We shut down. We were shut down yesterday. For really? snow. Yeah, we were shut down. But we worked. Those of us who could work remotely did so. So, that's what we did.
2: Gotcha. Well, you uh, you just kind of started off uh, the the first section by saying that you grew up in in Maryland. Um, so uh, why don't you tell us uh, more about where you're from? Um, you know, what kind of background you come from? What did your parents do? And uh, why did you get into publishing and specifically, um, you know, working uh, with with so many uh, different uh, types of history? So,
1: yeah, I was born in um, Silver Spring, Maryland, which is in Montgomery County. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C., and grew up mostly in the Baltimore area. My undergraduate degree is from a school right north of Baltimore, Towson University. And my dad was a United Methodist minister or his whole career, and at that time, they moved ministers around like chess men, and I say men because they were all men at that time. So wow. there were times we lived somewhere for four years, and sometimes we lived there somewhere for two years. It was kind of like being an army brat, you know, saying of thing, just moving around. But it was all in central Maryland. So we lived near Annapolis, go Navy, sorry, army people, I love you. Um, we lived way up near the Pennsylvania line. But then we in 1970, we moved to just outside of Baltimore. I'm not kidding, like an an eighth of a mile from the city line. And I spent all of my life there until I moved away for good when I was in my 20s. So um, I'm trying to think of anything else that's relevant about that. Not really, I'll just move on. So when you're a musician, and I, I was a musician from a very early age, you kind of it's like a a kid who's athletic it just becomes a thing it's your identity and so I played piano from age of three played what
0: was that uh, was that uh related to church
1: no not at all no
0: just kind of yeah
1: just yeah yeah for me it was just playing the piano I enjoyed doing it and I guess I was good at it so I took lots of lessons and um It's the kind of thing that when you're going through school, and I mean like elementary through high school, it's just who you are. And so there was no question that I was going to be a music major in college and all my friends who played music seriously in, in high school went on to become music majors in college. And so I never stopped to think, is this what I really want to do? It was just like BA. Okay, now I'm going to get an MA. Now I'm going to get a PhD. I definitely gravitated toward the academic side. So I started as a performance major and I was like really interested in music history, which I had not really studied much before and also took a lot of philosophy courses and just got really interested in the academic side of music and music history. So I changed my major to music history in college and then went on for an MA, then again, no question, go right on for a PhD. And then suddenly I just stopped. I mean, you could almost hear the tire screech. And it reminded me of, oh, it was somebody, was it Seth Rogen? Somebody on Comedians and Cars with Coffee, the Jerry Lewis show. And he Seinfeld. was actually- Jerry Seinfeld. He was actually we, para- para- Jerry,
0: Jerry Seinfeld. We, we don't do Jerry Lewis on this podcast.
1: Did I say Jerry Lewis?
0: Yeah, you did. That's, oh, that's, a, that's a real problem. That's that, that's a real
3: <laughs> real problem.
1: Okay, yeah. we'll we'll find out why later. But sorry, I'm not Jerry I'. Of course. And he, I think I think he was paraphrasing somebody else. But he said, "I thought I wanted to be a stand-up comedian until I I went to LA." I think he said, and met people who really wanted to be stand-up comedians. And that's exactly when I saw that episode. I was like, "That's it. That's exactly what happened to me at, at Chicago." I was in this elite program. I kind of felt a little bit uneasy, but I wasn't sure what it was. And then it was that realization, not everybody, but a lot of my fellow students really wanted to do this. And I did not. I just realized I don't want to get a PhD. And Chicago is probably not the right school for me. I think they're different now. But at that time, they were super, super traditional. I'm talking about the music department. And you if you were doing a thesis it had to be something very narrow so i talked to my advisor just kicking ideas around and he knew i was interested in 20th century french music and he said well what might you be focusing on in your th- on your dissertation i said oh, probably probably something with debussy I, I would say that would that would interest me the most well what piece specifically um, probably his opera Peléas and Mélisande. Um, I think there's a lot there to unpack. And, and then he started to narrow me even more. What aspects of that, you know, so that you're getting dissertations like, you know, the use of the perfect fifth in the late string quartets. Is, I mean, really narrow stuff. And that's how academic publishing was too at that time. A lot of books were really, really narrow. So it was a combination of that and thinking, you know, I don't want to be pigeonholed into being like the world's only expert on Debussy's paleos and Melizan. And then having worked, um, I mentioned on Twitter once about how typing for personal use in high school was the best thing I've ever taken. And the reason I said that was because I spent my summers and years between years of school um, as a Kelly temp. So I worked in when I was in Chicago, I worked in all these different I can go back now and point to different skyscrapers. I worked there. I worked there. I worked there. And one of the assignments I got was an encyclopedia Britannica. And I kind of looked around and went, oh, my gosh, there are educated, intelligent people here who aren't in academia. And I, that was like a real revelation for me. And so I talked to somebody there who had a PhD from Chicago and we I talked to him about publishing and what it's like to work in publishing, and that sort of opened my eyes. So um, I t- had told my advisor that I would they do quarters or they did. I don't know if they still do at Chicago. So I told him I'd come back in the fall, finish that quarter, and then that next calendar year I would be out. And fortunately, I'm so grateful I was only uh, the, the hiatus between, My leaving the program and my getting a full-time job was only three weeks. Um, A job opened up at the University of Chicago Press, an entry-level job, and I went to the Career Counseling Center at Chicago, which was phenomenal. It really helped me a lot. And I just happened to talk to somebody who became eventually the managing editor at Chicago, Anita Seaman, who had worked at Scribner's and a couple of other places and said, Rights is a great place to be. You'll interact with other departments. You'll learn a lot about publishing. So I started out as a rights assistant, and I thought I wanted to go to become a a copy editor. I thought, you know, copy editing—that's what I want to do. I every all publishers know about Max Perkins, who was the iconic editor for authors like Hemingway and Fitzgerald, and you know, he advised them. Are all kinds of volumes of letters between Max Perkins and Ring Lardner and Hemingway, and um, I want to be Max Perkins. Well, Max Perkins was really an acquisitions editor, but I didn't know what that was until I started working at Chicago, and then I was like, "No, that's what I want to do." And it's partly personality. I mean, I'm a huge extrovert. Can you tell? And that really suited me. <laughs> no, I missed also... I
0: was missing that. Um, yeah, really. <laughs> so, so let's back up just a sec to. to, back yeah, to well, I'm kind
1: of finish my spiel too. So.
0: So was it always more classical oriented your your interest, jazz or? Anything else? Academically,
1: or? it was classical. That's really right. all anybody was doing back then. Even ethnomusicology, which is, you know, the music of Nigeria or Colombia or wherever. Um, people actually, other musicologists, I actually heard people refer to them as the lunatic fringe.
3: Really? <laughs> but
1: that was that was the early 80s. And jazz, there were some City University of New York and some other schools I know were doing, people were doing dissertations on Cole Porter and the Beatles and, but generally musicology, which is always way behind in terms of trends in other fields, um, they were still mostly doing classical stuff, that's really all you did.
0: Well, I'm, this, this is really intriguing me because two things, one real quick, Brian, remember when we t- talked with Beth Bailey, who, who Joyce also knows very well, um it seemed like she got to that point as well where i kind of want to do this but there's these other people who really want to do
3: this (laughs) yeah
0: therefore i'm just going to play the clarinet at the campfire outside the longhouse outside of lawrence right um and
1: the hell of a gig
3: yeah
0: um (laughs) she's she's there every thursday and friday night two shows um but so uh my neighbor uh who who Brian has met uh, Joyce is a musicologist and he's a professor at Converse college. Um, and he's, he's German. Um, not that that really matters or anything, but, but it's a very similar thing. Well, it's a very similar thing in the sense that, that his, his father was a a minister Hmm, in Germany and, and Zig he's, he's funny. He's like, there is no music after 1897. I think that's when Brahms died or something like that. (laughs) <laughs> and so we, we give him a hard time uh, uh, about that deal. And I'll be honest with you, the, the, the concept of musicology, I had not, not even really occurred to me. I mean, I knew there was music history, right? I, as an undergrad, I took, uh, I took a course on history of classical music through the music department and also took a history of jazz. And um but it, but it was for like it was kind of like you know that kind of music for dummies, which was probably one reason why I was in there. But um, yeah, it was just a, it wasn't you know intense, like the musicology approach. Sure. Yeah. And, and everything, but but that's really that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, so so you, you but why, why why then the French? Why why did that kind of grab you?
1: I think it was originally performance related. I really enjoyed playing 20th century French music, and I also loved it from a very early age. My dad had a recording, of, you know, an LP back then, um, wow. of some Debussy, and I remember, you know, Prelude to the Afternoon of a Faun, which is probably right. his best known work. Just sitting in the living room and listening to that, it just really resonated with me. And then the more I learned about French music and the more French music I learned to play, I just really, I still do to this day. That is my, I would say I have three favorite composers and Debussy is definitely one of them.
0: The Reg is in there watching Six Nations and you're playing Debussy. That's
1: right? exactly right. It's absolutely <laughs> That's true. That's our on. house. He's a big rugby fan, and I'm playing the piano, French music. <laughs> Not just French music, but
0: very good. Very good.
2: So and he's uh, going,
1: Gone, you boy. Ya.
2: So <laughs> we uh we heard that you uh you may be fluent in German. Is that true?
1: Not fluent. I can get by, I would say. I'm
2: rusty. So where did that come from then? Where did you pick that up if you're doing French music?
1: Um, Well, when you're studying music history, I mean, the the cradle of musicology is Vienna, kind of, kind of contemporary of psychoanalysis. It's about the only connection those two have uh, late 19th century. And so all the news, all the original sources were in German and so you had to know German that had to be your first language so when I was an undergraduate I was taking French and my advisor said you really should probably switch to German because if you go on to grad school they'll require it so I started taking that in undergraduate school and then I took it for the two years I was at Eastman too all right oh do you like go down the
0: hallways there at the ranch out at the University Press of Kansas offices and like Swear under your breath in German, so sometimes
1: no I do. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'll say things in German like "was ist dies," you know, or something, and or I'll, yeah, "was gibt's hier." I'll hear you'll hear that from you a lot. "Was gibt's hier?" And yeah, it's kind of strange because nobody else knows what I'm saying. So,
2: <laughs> yeah, you might have I
1: love the language so much; it's just the best.
2: Yeah, I do love the language. It is uh, it is, is a great language to have at your disposal, especially for uh, trying to sound intimidating.
1: Well, yeah, because then you can say words like Vergangenheitsbewältigung and yeah. you know, <laughs> when you explain it, it's like, that's what I love about it, though. I mean, it really, that word is so long, but it makes absolute perfect sense. Yeah,
2: yeah, coming to terms with the
1: coming past. Coming to terms with the past, yeah. <laughs> well, I was
0: going to say, so you... End up, let's say you start out in Chicago. And is it, I, I assume it's like a lot of other things, Joyce, where you you build up a little experience in this area, then maybe you move somewhere else to get experience in another area, right? And then you end up maybe, I guess, where you wanted to be, which is acquisitions,
1: right? Is that kind of how it Well, what I was I was very fortunate with my first acquisitions job because I was working as a rights assistant at Chicago. And then Colin Day, who had been hired at the University of Michigan Press a couple of years before from Cambridge, he was the editorial director at Cambridge, had a plan to increase the number of books at that press and really put that press on the map, which he did. And he hired three of us who had no acquisitions experience to be acquisitions editors there. And he was a really good mentor. He kind of trained us in how to do acquisitions so that's how I got that job it's hard to get an acquisitions job you know because people want ideally experience first and if you don't have any experience it's like well how can I get hired so so moving see the thing with me and moving too is having moved quite a bit until I was about 10 years old that's when we kind of settled in the Baltimore area I didn't mind moving. It's like, oh, there's a job here. And you know, I was single. And it's like, yeah, I'll just get up and move to South Carolina from Michigan. So I would see opportunities and take them. There were a couple times where I left presses because of toxic directors. I was just oh. like, I, I can't stand it anymore. One person was, I'm not kidding, I think had serious mental health issues. The other was just a bad manager. And so you know, I was, I couldn't stick around and I was fortunate to be able to just go to somewhere else because I didn't have kids or, or a, a spouse at that time with a career who didn't want to leave or something.
2: Publishing. Is it a case more of a job gets posted or you have he- headhunters who are approaching you?
1: You get headhunters when you get to a certain point in your career. But earlier in my career, it was just hearing about jobs and gosh, how did we do it at the, until the internet really took off you would hear about jobs mostly through the back of publishers weekly they yeah. would post jobs just a little classified section about to say that the trade magazine yeah the trade magazine <laughs> yeah
0: the, the trade one. magazine
1: what, what subject
0: areas did you start out in
1: i started out in okay i did music for michigan they had mostly american music for a series called i think it's just called american music um edited by rich crawford who was a professor there at the music school at michigan which i enjoyed greatly um but then i was also told i'd be doing medieval studies german studies and anthropology german studies because i was the only person who knew german at the time and that was mostly jeff ely's <laughs> series i don't know if you know jeff he's a social historian oh um, who's
2: who's jeff ely <laughs> You know who Jeff is? Yeah, of course. He's 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 a god in German history. Oh, okay, yeah, it's really
1: lucky to get that series off the ground with him. Now Kathleen Canning is editing it, and I remember when she was hired right out of PhD school; she was just a baby.
3: Yeah, she's and great too.
1: So um, anthropology, I was like, okay, you know, re- a good editor can edit in any subject. Maybe not the hard sciences. I mean, if you're going to do physics, you really need to know. I. I couldn't do it, but you know, physicists mostly write articles anyway, but anthropology, I thought, okay, you know, and fortunately because we had Colin as a mentor, he could kind of tell us, how do you learn about a topic? Well, it's kind of like being a grad student. That's why grad school is so important. I think for acquisitions, you find out who the major players are, what they're doing, what the trends in the field are. And anthropology was, if you ask me, aside from military history, what subject area I enjoyed the most, it would be anthropology. Never, I took anthropology one, or one course in college, which I enjoyed a lot because it was different from anything else I'd done, but I kind of forgot all about it. And it was wonderful. The authors were great. They were so interesting. And I have to tell this story, which might insult you, but I'm gonna tell it anyway. I always talk about the difference between anthropologists and historians at conferences like a big conference, like the American Anthropological Association and the AHA. So at the um, AHA, somebody might come up to your booth and say, do you have anything on 17th century France? You say, nope, sorry. And they just go away. At the anthropology meeting, somebody might say, do you have anything about the indigenous, indigenous people of Canada? And you say, no, they'll still look at your other stuff. They're just so ah, interested in so huh. many things. And maybe that's, you know, getting back to what I said about musicology, maybe it's, there's just a different way of doing things where you specialize more. I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive, you know, maybe an anthropologist would say, well, it's not really that.
0: Big. No, I don't think so. Because Brian and I have talked it in, in some of our other interviews in this pod about, uh, you know, how history still approaches our business as a very stove-typed discipline.
3: Hmm.
0: stovepipe dis discipline. So yeah. you know, you're you're a historian of this or of that. It's almost like what you said about doing your, your thesis at Chicago, right? You know, a little more broad than that. But you know yeah. what I mean, it's just kind of I'm a historian of this, of that, that or whatever, and, and I don't I don't approach the gutter, the gutters on either side of the lane. I try to stay in the middle of that right. lane. Yeah. Right. I, I think now, I, there's a lot of people who who don't adhere to that but but I, I still think our history as a discipline still is that way and, and culturally is, is still that way which which I think is unfortunate because I mm-hmm. think it, it you know it it, it kind of gets in the way of, of people collaborating and you know learning more from from, from others who are doing other things right, right. Um, right. Yeah. like yeah. you know I might actually, Learn something from, I don't know, French intellectual history or, or something like that, right? Um, whereas, no, I'm just a Vietnam, right? Whatever. And I'm just this with Vietnam, and that's it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and and I, I still think we suffer from that a little bit. So that, that response yeah. at the AHA doesn't surprise me.
3: So, yeah.
0: one bit. Yeah.
2: As you can see, we actually write questions out, but we tend to just kind of. Um, it's just know. for looks. Use that as a rough guide, and so if, with with Bill's permission, I want to uh, I want to kind of go off on a little side here. Um, you know, you talked about AHA, and obviously, when when COVID is not keeping us all at home more than we would like to be at home, you're you're on the road a lot, um, going to conferences and uh, you know setting up book displays. You're you're you know you're all over the country, and I remember in, in grad school and even early in in my career, you know you all are very intimidating to people who are looking to get something published. And it's not because of anything that you've done. It's just that, you know, you are, there's this fear that you're going to say no, or you're going to say, no, we're not interested in that. Um, Is it actually useful? And and we hope that we have some grad students listening. Is it actually useful to walk up and without an appointment, just start chatting with you guys?
1: I think it depends on the conference at, AHA, I would say yes, because I'm not as booked. SMH, no, because I have like, I'm constantly talking to people and having appointments. But I think just to answer the question generally about, you know, being, is it acceptable to do that? It depends on the publisher, I think. And even not just the publishing house, but the person, there are, I'm sure you've heard stories about rude acquisitions editors i think most of us in university press publishing i hope we're not like that most of us i am always happy i love talking shop and I, i not just about our press but about university press publishing about publishing in general and if a grad student came up to me at the aha and said hey i'm working on 18th century German intellectual history and I'm just trying to get a sense of what published you know I'll, I'll sit with them for a couple of minutes and talk about that but I I would say people shouldn't be intimidated but you do have to be careful because there are some editors who for various reasons sometimes they're arrogant sometimes they're insecure you know whatever and they just give this impression of just you know I don't how how dare you Approach me,
2: right? Yeah. I
1: think I think that's the minority. I think most people are approachable.
0: Yeah, it's like do it through channels, right? F- fo- fo- follow the command structure. Yeah, uh, command
1: structure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a chain of command here that like, starts with cho- you choice is you Like,
0: do, do you not see my name tag, editor there in chief? chief? How dare yeah. you? right? How dare you approach me? There's an underling over here that you may you may that's speak. Right.
2: He'll be back Um, in a minute. He went to get me a coffee.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when that vein though, I mean, I I think a lot of people actually don't realize that, that how, how much of your acquisition time is, is well spent at conferences because that's a central location where you get to talk to a lot of people. And, you know, that's, that's important. That's, that's, what 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 percent do you think you get out of out of that out of you know proposals? Yeah, again, like, say the SMH conference.
1: SMH, yeah. oh wow, it would be wow, it's a lot. I mean, maybe 80 to 90 percent. Whereas yeah. at the OAH, which I attend mostly because other editors have conflicts, it's really not much because there's not a lot of military history represented at the OAH. There is at the AHA. So then I might talk to, I'm not kidding, like two or three people, which is why I wish we could send another editor. We try to see if that's possible. There's going to be a hybrid meeting again this year with the OAH. But um, AHA, maybe 30%. I mean, it's very, very high volume at the SMH because I talked to lots of people and a lot of that stuff does, it might happen the next year and it might happen five years later. You know, somebody's just, and I, I should tell you also, when I started in acquisitions, the university press, what'd you call it? The kind of standard, the thing that acquisitions editors were told was if somebody's in a PhD program working on their dissertation, don't. Don't even talk to them until they revise their dissertation. It's too early, you don't want to get in there. Now you have to talk to them while they're working on their dissertations. It's competitive and I'm here to tell you, I know people say this isn't true, but at least for military history it is. There are a lot of PhD students writing dissertations that are almost already really good books. Yeah. So yeah. the idea, right. you know, it depends on the field and I can't speak for a lot of them because I don't know all of them, but in the field of military history it's I get dissertations that I I send out dissertations unrevised. I usually ask authors to supply me with an outline of what their revisions would be. Right. But I learned pretty early in my career, not really early because I was just saying that we were told not to contact people too early, but um I would send things to readers that had been revised and then the readers would ask that person to do some, make some changes. And some of the things were things they had taken out because they thought, oh, I need to revise this before I send it to the publisher. So why take all that time and trouble when, and I don't get pushback. I have never had a, re- a prospective reader say, no, I don't want to read that because it's an unrevised dissertation. And again, it depends on the field. Military historians are, it, it's kind of like anthropology, frankly, they are so excited about other people's work and so supportive of yeah. their fellow scholars. Yeah, absolutely, And they want to do whatever they can to help out. They get really, oh, wow, somebody's written a manuscript on this. This is great. So that helps a lot too.
0: So what is your then uh, like ideal dissertation? You know, what, 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 what would it have? Or is that a fair question?
1: Wow, it's a tough question, my ideal dissertation. I think just speaking generally, it would be readable to a fairly wide audience. And that's what you hear all publishers say all the time, or at least all academic publishers. But it's not hard to do. Wittgenstein said anything that can be said can be said clearly. I don't think he was talking about dissertations, although the tractatus, which, in which that appeared, was a dissertation. Eventually, anyway, I'm such a dweeb. Um, <laughs> but you can do it. You can write a dissertation that your father can read. You know, think about not that not that a general audience would necessarily be interested in a revised dissertation, but you can you can write clearly. And if you can't, get somebody to help you write clearly. But I think, again, the field of military history tends to be more accessible anyway. I mean, so many of our books, this is is one of the fields in which we publish where a lot of our books get bought by general readers because they're just interested in military history. It's partly the topic, but it's also because the authors can write. And, and, and speak to that audience. So I right, think that's it's kind of, a, it's a very broad answer to your question.
2: Military history is in a unique position because the public is so interested in military history. And so at a place like Kansas, you know, how do you find that balance of, of maintaining that general interest, but then um, you know, also being concerned with kind of academic uh, standards for scholarship? Or I, I guess the better question is, is that a difficult balance to strike?
0: And also a would, book that yeah. that will sell, yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the day, that's also
1: kind of an important thing, right? <laughs> I would say for military history at Kansas, it's not too difficult a balance to strike. There are books that we know are meant for other military historians, and we do publish those too. <laughs> Everything, like as is the case with every university press, we send things out for peer review, so we have scholars weigh in on them so we make sure they have the academic oomph that they need and that the authors dotted all their t's and or crossed their t's and dotted their umlauts as Dwight Schrute would say so and of course our editorial board signs off on them and that's that's part of the peer review process too. I rarely see a manuscript that's written in a way that wouldn't communicate a military history uh, that that wouldn't communicate with a broader audience And that might even be one of the narrower books that would only sell to, you know, the 400 people who are interested. But we do, our our military history books do tend to be broader and speak to a broader audience. I'd say, you know, the World War II and Civil War lists, those are the big ones. I mean, that's what people who are general readers want to read about for the most part. But as you all know well, World War I, ever since the the commemorative period um we had a, i had a lot of authors in my previous job they were like we've got to get my book out in 2016 because we've got to commemorate it's like no everybody else is publishing books yeah. even if they've never published a book in world war ii it's okay for it to come out in 2021 nobody's gonna say oh well then i'm seeing more interest in world war one I. I think i'd like to see more even more among the general public than than there is I don't think we're done with World War II. There's always more out there and there will always be more good books. But I, as an editor, I'm seeing more World War One books and I'm happy to take them on.
2: Yeah, Um, this is just kind of a a, you very likely don't have a number, but how many proposals would you say uh, are sent to you in a given year? To me personally, or to the, or to, per, to, to the well, press. actually,
1: don't know about the press. And in, in, I would just say to me.
2: Okay. Yeah. To you.
1: Off the top of my head, and it's not inaccurate because I because of the volume that I would say about two to three hundred.
2: Oh wow! Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: It's like Brian, she was just glancing at her whiteboard in her office. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have little hash
3: cards. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I could quantify it for you by checking our database and seeing which ones I logged in. And But I mean, of those, about probably 90% get turned down, either because they're horrible or because it's, you know, my, my book in developmental psychology is about, you know, it's like, well, have you looked at our website? Yeah. So, but there are people that think that, yeah, you don't publish in developmental psychology, but once you look at my book proposal, you'll change your mind. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is we wouldn't be able to sell your book because we don't know the market. So that's what it's all about.
0: But what makes a weak book proposal? What's the biggest problem you see most of the time?
1: Unoriginality. That would be the big one. And that's sometimes... Is stuff that comes from amateurs. Sometimes it's not. Even though the title
0: says the untold story of.
1: Oh yes, right. (laughs) You know you've got a, a real zinger when you have somebody that tells you right at the beginning, I am telling you, you know, as you say, the untold story of there was somebody who sent me something about some World War II general, I can't remember which one and nothing has ever been done and, and i told him i i when i turned it down i said actually there are 6 books on this general. oh <laughs> you know, wow just, do your homework dude um yeah that's bad um bad presentation um you might have seen my snarky tweet from a couple of weeks ago when i said you know don't tell me i don't want to do a full blown proposal it's like bye bye you know we have we asked for a full proposal for a reason. If you're Rob Satino, no, you don't need to send me a full proposal. But if I don't know who you are, it's not that hard. Just put it together and do the work. And if you're lazy early on like that, as I said in the tweet, I don't want to inflict you on the staff because you're going to be lazy all the way. Proof for you? You want me to do what? What you want me to do?
0: What? <laughs> See, I'd, I'd make I'd make Satino submit a full proposal every once in a while just to yeah. turn him around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. just to just to jerk yeah. his chain. Yeah, yeah. He, he he needs he. He doesn't have that enough in his life. He needs to be jerked around. So
3: that would yeah. be
1: great. I should next, do that as next, a joke next time.
0: As, as most of our listeners know, I, I edit the Modern War Studies series there at Kansas and, and work with Joyce a lot, and uh, have learned a tremendous amount from Joyce. Not only just good proposals, good manuscripts, and good and good reviewers. Good, good. How to do a good peer review. Right. Because that's another aspect of this yeah. is how to do a thorough peer re- your review of a manuscript if you're a reader, um, but also just about the university press publishing business, you know, in general. You know, it has to be said, Joyce, that, that you came to Kansas. You, you basically, uh, re- I shouldn't say replaced, but you, you took Mike, Mike Briggs, stepped aside and, and you, you, you became the new Mike Briggs. And if, if you don't mind me saying that, but uh, because, you know, Mike is a delightful guy and really did a great a job legend. at Kansas for it. Yeah. He's a legend. Absolutely. Um, he's a legend at the uh, little makeshift basketball course in your book warehouse as well. Um, <laughs> That's what I heard. But <laughs> but I have been there, man. And then, you know, me coming in with the, the tremendously huge shoes of, of Ted Wilson, you know, who, who got this series started, Brian, we, I went out there to, I was. I think I was at a conference and Beth Bailey had put a thing on with their, you know, the Warren Society I Center. And mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, I, I, Joyce picked me up and we went over to the press and they were doing, I think I just missed, you were going to have a reception for Ted. They made like, I don't know how many books Ted.
1: 286.
0: Made. There you are. <laughs> 286 were published in Modern War Studies wow. under Ted. I mean, he was the founding editor mm-hmm. of that and. They made like a Christmas tree, like a like stacked them. I mean, it was just massive. And and I, I, I looked at that thing and I was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm,
2: you, <laughs> I'm in is trouble. Is this gonna
0: be me? Oh boy." <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was very humbling. It was very humbling to say. Well, you reason.
1: you stepped right up to bat though. I mean, it's just there is no break. We've just got the hits just keep on coming, Bill.
0: Yeah. We're doing pretty good i think we're doing pretty Mm -hmm. good should we take a little break
1: yeah sure sure okay i don't have any m&ms though is that okay
0: that's all right i you know mine are in the other room i got i got you know we got the the valentine's day just milk chocolate (sighs) m&ms
3: too sweet too much i need i
0: need the uh, peanut butter
2: the peanut butter ones are the way to go yeah 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 they're the way to go
0: Hey, everyone, Military Historians of People Too wants to push two important things with our listeners. First, we don't get any compensation from the University Press of Kansas. The wonderful folks out there in Lawrence kindly promote our podcast on their social media feeds, and we're really grateful for that. In return, we encourage you to check out the University Press of Kansas and its great list, including many military history titles and series such as Modern War Studies, which I am honored to serve as series editor. But we don't wanna just push the University Press of Kansas. Brian and I encourage you to check out the amazing books and journals offered by the university press community. Whether it's North Carolina, Texas A&M, Cornell, NYU, Cambridge, Oxford, whatever, visit their websites, check out the wonderful scholarship these and other presses produce each year. If you see something you like, if you can buy it directly from the press website, all the better. And in that same vein, as a non-monetized podcast, we rely on our listeners to help us get the word out about military historians or people, too. So please retweet, repost, share on all your social media feeds, our podcast and pods like Bow & Blade, Khaki Malarkey, Peel.news, and any others that you listen to. You are such an important part of all of us reaching our listeners. So thank you for your support. Please share us, keep listening, and enjoy today's show. So, Joyce, you're into Debussy and, and French music and, and musicology and all that, and you and you get it's almost like you get bushwhacked into this this uh, ed- ed- editing thing and acquisitions, and then suddenly you're doing military history. How does that happen?
1: Well, especially a minister's kid. <laughs> an anti anti-war ministers kid now he is very respectful of the military but he was you know against the war in vietnam and, and sure. he ran into a lot of trouble with his congregation for that but but he never he never with us kids was like you know did that did that military equals militaristic thing that so many people do good guy and i miss him a lot i was happily acquiring in Folklore, Religious Studies, Literary Studies, Black Studies, Vernacular Architecture at University of Tennessee Press. And as you know, the University of Tennessee Press has a big Civil War list. Well, the director was doing that, Jennifer. um, Oh my gosh, I'm spacing on her name, Jennifer, I love you. Um, And she decided that she was gonna concentrate only on trade books regional trade books like the big you know like a gardening guide and that kind of thing so she said so i'm gonna hand this civil war list over to you and you know she's the director so it's like okay we'll do and i shit, (laughs) i don't know anything about this my dad was a history buff and we went to you know gettysburg and antietam and all these places on vacations and i was kind of mildly interested but um jennifer seiler i knew it would come to me i am getting old um and so i just picked up jim mcpherson's battle cry of freedom i was like i'm gonna read this book and learn about the civil war and what was interesting was not only did i learn a lot and i love that book and but i got really interested in operational history which to this day just baffles me i don't i can't tell you my family is completely flung. it's like you are interested in like operational history. It's like, yeah, I love that stuff. These guys moved over here and then they, I just love it. I guess the rest is history. I mean, I, I did civil war there. Uh, I did not do the military list at Kentucky. That was the director who did that. I did Southern history. So I did the civil war list there and did more military history at Kent State. And of course, a lot of it here. I'm just really interested in it now, personally as well as professionally. There are some areas that acquisitions that editors acquire in that they're not really interested in at all, and they never read anything in that subject outside of work. I love military. Then, then how do you, they? How do they then know,
0: like what's going on with the field? You know, they're not you, you
1: really... I, What I mean by not reading it is that when they go home, they don't. If if I go home, sometimes I'll for for relaxation, you know read a military history book but you can keep up with the field and just not do anything outside. No, fair enough of, no no that's fair that yeah so yeah,
0: there wasn't a fair fair comment but
1: enough. i'm such a. do and of course reg my husband is um the son of a an irish military you know career officer so we're just complete dweebs, and we were driving west on the on seventy when we first moved here. We we're like, oh, the cavalry museum. We have to go because he was a cavalry officer, and at Fort Riley. So you know you have to jump through a bunch of hoops there because to get on posts. But um, oh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. So,
0: but yeah. So you know the decline of the humanities just writ large. Have you seen that impact the the university press, you know, publishing
1: business? Yeah, I think so because. <laughs> People used to be interested. I mean, it's naive to think that like, oh, well, in the 20s, everybody, you know, who was anybody, regardless of whether you're an academic or, or not, read academic monographs. Of course they didn't. But there was a broader interest, I think, in in learning about different things. And it's become so niche oriented now that people get, I mean, even even in my academics, because as we were saying earlier, you know, the ones that just, I only do this or only work on that. And I think that's become a problem. So somebody might be interested in a particular genre of literature, say, I don't know, Irish 20th century Irish poetry. And same thing, even if they're not academics, they just enjoy reading 20th century Irish poetry. A lot of times, their interests don't extend beyond that. And so, and now I'm speaking, of course, of outside academia. So I think that can be a problem. And then, as far as publishing goes, there are, because of the Specialization and narrowness in a lot of fields, and I find that I found that, although I've not acquired in this area for a while, in literary studies, for example, publishers are not as eager to say add literary studies as part of their of their publishing program because that those books don't sell. That's the, and so that's what's affected university presses in terms of the decline of the humanities, or the I I wouldn't call. I would call it more like the decline of the value of the humanity, you know, the, the way yeah. people just don't seem to value it sure. as yeah. much sure. anymore. And so there aren't as many good books. There aren't as many publishers publishing that area. Publishers are, and this, this doesn't have to do with the decline of the humanities, but it's related. When I started in publishing, or at least as an acquisitions editor when I was at Michigan, publishers, academic publishers could rely on, university libraries buying 900 to 1000 copies of every monograph they publish. Now you're lucky if it's 150 or even 100. And it's not that right? libraries are not our enemy. It's that those science, those STEM publishers charge so much for those subscriptions to science journals that yep. libraries, especially public libraries that are not public, but I mean public university libraries don't have the budgets to do that. And then to acquire all of these academic monographs too, there's kind of a cause and effect that goes both ways because then publishers are like, okay, we can't publish books in this area, this subject or this subject within a discipline anymore, because nobody's going to buy those. And we can't, we literally, you know, can't afford it. We won't ever recover our manufacturing costs, let alone anything else. And so that I think discourages people from if if you're in a graduate program and you're thinking of writing a dissertation, it's like, well, nobody's going to buy my book anyway. So there's a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of people like to blame it on sort of outside culture and they don't like academia and they don't like, there's a lot of that, of course. And I think we're going back to an old kind of ignorance model, you know, of, of like distrusting intellectuals and experts. Not that I'm revealing any thing that new. I think that affects how publishers think about what they do. And it definitely affects the market for books. And then that affects what grad students are doing, because a savvy grad student nowadays isn't going to say, well, I'm just going to write a book on this really, really narrow topic and not a book, but a dissertation that becomes a book. And nobody's ever going to buy that book, but it's okay. It doesn't matter. Well, that People don't have that attitude. They shouldn't. I don't think they should have that attitude. So it's complex. I mean, I'm kind of talking in circles a lot here because it's everything is kind of pushing back on everything else.
2: So with with budget cuts, as a general rule, you see state legislatures giving less money to university presses uh, generally. And has that led in your experience, not only at Kansas, but um, with with people, you know, are um, subventions becoming more and more common? Are our, our university presses a- asking authors to chip in some money toward production?
1: Right, yeah, yeah, because we have the, our subsidy has been, our subsidy meaning the money we get from our parent institutions, and it's plural because we're a consortium press that serves right. six universities. That, that hasn't changed for a long, long time. And it's also about half of what presses our size, Receive. And that's not a seek. I'm not talking out of school that everybody's been very transparent about that. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. That can be a problem because a lot of that goes to your operating expenses or if you're paying your salaries and benefits, it goes into that. And some publishers feel the squeeze more with individual books than others. We ask for subsidies primarily for books that are gonna be really expensive to produce. If they're gonna cost, you know, $30,000 because they are big, large format, color photographs throughout, um, it's gonna require something. And we really can't, that's become a requirement now for our press that we, The author. We can work with them. That we need to fill out forms for them for somebody or whatever. Otherwise, if somebody were to come to us with an academic book that was really expensive, we would probably just agree. We have a group that meets every other week and a, a you know staff review committee that talks mostly about whether this is a good fit for us and whether we can afford to publish it. And we have turned things down at that committee because we just say, you know, this looks great, but it's It's going to be a huge book, and we're thinking of a print run of like 500 copies, which means we'd have to charge $75 for it. And we historically, and by historically, I mean recent past, maybe the last 20 years, have priced our books lower than a lot of other university presses. Absolutely. We are changing that a little bit now. We're raising some of our prices a little just to... Because because we can, I mean, that sounds snotty, but just because they're underpriced, and we don't want to be a publisher who has a 400-page book that's you know $95. Who's going to buy that? Not even libraries, as we know. Right, right,
3: yeah. right.
1: It's also, again, it gets back to the the mission of a press and 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 how the press feels about its authors. But we part of our existence is to really. Right by our authors, and it would be wrong to say, "Yeah, we'll publish your book and we'll charge ninety-five dollars for it, and nobody will ever buy it." But who cares? We want the book to sell, and we want it to be a success. That's when we probably wouldn't ask for a subsidy. I mean, if it's a book that's huge like that, that doesn't have a big market, if you give us five thousand dollars, yeah, we could bring the price down a little. But you know, you got to think about. It's always the contribution and the market, and we're not just a commercial press, of course, but we don't want the book to sit in the warehouse either for its entire lifetime.
2: And I assume that an author's reputation has something to do with that. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'll throw Rob Satino out there again. Rob Satino yeah. wants to write something for you. You know that just based on the name alone, it's probably going to sell. Yeah. And so, or David Glantz,
0: or somebody yeah. like or that. Tim right? Smith. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay. All right.
1: And somebody asked me once. Um, I, I had said to him, you know, he had a huge manuscript that we turned down. We didn't even get to that review committee. And I said, there's no way we would have to charge so much money for it. And he said, well, but David Glantz's books are only $39.95. It's like, yeah, well, David Glantz's books sell thousands of copies. I didn't say that to him of yeah. course, but it's like, the, it's, it's all manufacturing, whether it's tchotchkes or widgets or it's, you've got a unit cost and that unit cost is going to go down the more of whatever it is you produce. Well, if we do 2000 copies of a David Glantz book, the unit cost is going to be a lot lower than if we did 400 copies. And that's how you figure out everything that arrive at your price. Eventually you figure in the royalties, the costs,
2: a lot of math involved. How the, how the sausage gets made.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I think I it's think useful right. for people to know. I mean yeah, absolutely. For, yeah, for people like yeah. us to to know because right. we just see, you know, you know, like on Twitter, I was looking at Twitter earlier today, and you know, people well done. People have got their got their books, right? They've come in and I've got my bot. Oh, bo- right. Pictures. Okay, that's great. But did did you know how do you know how much that cost? Or you know what, you know, what the bottom line is on this? Because at, at the end of the day, there's a bottom line.
3: Mm-hmm. yeah
0: and and there's people's as, as joyce as you know all too well there's there's people's jobs positions are at stake and and university presses have to have to be solvent
3: right right, right.
0: and so it's balancing that scholarly contribution but also stuff that sells
1: it's hard it's hard because especially early career acquisitions editors we get a little jaded as we get along in our careers but no not you want so badly to you know, <laughs> be able but this is really it's it's really the first time anybody's looked at the such and such and you know it's like yeah okay, but you're a business we're a business and the old model for university presses back in the 60s and maybe into the 70s was is it a contribution to scholarship? yes, then publish it. That's right. not the way it is anymore.
2: I think that's that's probably one of the most valuable statements that you've made is just that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter if, if it's, a, it matters if it's a contribution, but that's not enough because contributions enough. don't pay the bills. Yeah.
1: And, you know, when you're a young editor, it can be heartbreaking. I remember crying once when Colin back at Michigan said, no, we're, we we can not publish this. I just... <laughs> Unfortunately, there was a, you know, a more senior editor who was like, it's okay. Don't take it personally. And, and you kind of learn, you know, you learn it's a business. And do you want, press to continue existing if so you've got to do what you can it doesn't mean you have to publish bestsellers all the time and you've really got to think is this something that's going to cause us to lose money because a lot of books do and of course publishing like like the tchotchkes you just don't know there's not really much science to it david glance yeah you know the books are going to sell in the thousands but anything that's new i i always think there was a there's a, uh, do, you know, do you all know Isaac Mizrahi, the fashion designer? Yeah. There's a movie made, yep. documentary made about a new collection he had back in the early 90s. And there's a scene where he was going to do this big thing with puffy fake furs, and it was so cute, and he was so excited about it. And then he, Women's Wear Daily came out, and they found that, oh, I don't know who, some other designer had the same idea. That's how publishers think too. Oh, we've got this biography of so and so, and this is the first time anybody's. Do- and then Ron Chernow publishes a biography on that person, and that's it for your book. It's dead, and it's really it's always a risk. Not okay. Not every book you publish is a risk, but there's no rhyme or reason to what's going to happen, what else is going to come out, um, whether the bottom's going to drop. You know, we, during the pandemic. The early part of the pandemic, book sales plummeted. They're back up now, not that strongly, I don't think, but, um, but things are stabilizing. But when
0: when we talked with uh, Megan Kate Nelson, you know, because she of course she is you know into the trade publishing world, mm-hmm. you know, she said this kind of the same thing that it's the same with with trade that that you know yeah, a lot of times true. you just don't know. But I think yeah. that's an important advice, especially for young scholars. That you know, if your manuscript gets rejected, it's not always that your 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 book's not any good. There's there's other factors involved. Oh yeah. And yeah. and the more educated you are about this business, the better you will be able to handle that, but also adjust accordingly, mm-hmm. so that maybe you can find a, a good home for it. You mm-hmm. know, that, that doesn't involve as much risk or whatever uh, for for a press, I guess.
1: Right. And that's why doing your research about publishers is so important. Because in military history, you might say, oh, I want to publish with, excuse me, Kansas. (laughs) Well, okay. But, and we have a very broad publishing program, military history, but there might be, there are a couple of presses that really don't publish in military history as a discipline, but they have series that might be perfect for Mm -hmm. your book.
0: What do you see the strengths of, of military history today, and, and also maybe, w- w- what do you wish it would do as far as the, the, the work that you see coming across your desk?
1: Um, what do you I like,
0: to, but what, do you, what would you like to see more of?
1: Yeah, I hate to sound cliche, but I really think this is important in the field, field of history, which is race, class, and gender. There's not enough of it. There needs to be, sources are out there, the resources are out there, and we need to do more with that. We have some books on um, black history, gender, that are either out to readers, under contract, or both, they're, they're under contract and now they're out to readers. That's so important for the field because it's so, so rich and so vast. So that would be my emphatic answer. We've, we've got to see more about that. It's great to see, and this isn't any, anything super new, more bottom-up studies, even, even in Civil War, which used to be so top-down. Uh, but, but at the same time, operational history, and you know, Kansas, that's one of our strengths, is always going to be around, and it's always going to be important, too. I think that the more traditional ways of doing military history can exist side-by-side side with newer things. And again, the thing I really like about the field is that if you're doing a book on Korean-Americans in Vietnam War or something the more traditional military historians, or many, m- m- most of them, I should say, aren't going to be like, what are you doing that for? I mean, it's a very supportive field where people are interested in, You know, it's naive of me to say that all military historians are interested in everything everybody's doing, but it's a much more open-minded field, I think, for, for new approaches to things.
0: And Heather Stir kind of hinted toward this when we t- talked, talked with her. Uh, by the way, beat Rob Setino to over 200 plays.
1: <laughs> oh my uh, goodness.
0: Yes, just Go by ahead. a hair, just by a hair. That you can tell those stories, say of underrepresented voices, if you will, through say operational history. Right. That that those things will, will really start to meld together. So in other words, the field yeah, kind of split apart and then gonna, I, I'd like to see it come back together. Yes, mutually supporting, because I still say you can't understand all the war in society, material, scholarship, whatever, unless you really understand combat.
3: Right, right.
0: The kinetic part of warfare, Mm
3: -hmm. which,
0: you know, operational history is part of that, that those things will come 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 together. And that's that's what I'd really like to see more of.
1: No, I yeah. think that's really important because <laughs> there. I can't remember which conference. I think it was a so- Society for Civil War Historians about 10 years ago. Oh, I'm exaggerating, of course, but I was waiting for, you know, fisticuffs because it was about operational history versus social history. And, yep. and people started raising their voices. And I was like, oh, come on, y'all. You can you can make this work just as right. you were saying, yeah. Bill. They can. It can they're not mutually exclusive. They're not. And there's this silly attitude of, if you do social history, well, the, then you don't understand anything. You know, you don't really know. Well, the people I know who do social military history know operational history. They just don't do books on it. it it's, it's like music theory and music history. There have always been clashes between the two because one is about an analyzing music that's music theory you're looking at pieces and you're looking at the structure and and those people look down on musicologists because they're only doing history and they don't they can't even read music well, then especially
0: then, yeah. if there's nothing after
1: 1897. Right. <laughs> after 18, right. Yeah, right?
0: Yeah. right. I love teasing yeah. Zig about that. It's hilarious. Oh, he's oh, a, he's a
2: Mendelssohn guy. So he's he's way early on. Oh, eight, yeah. 97
1: would be very late
2: for him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But so, you just, you know, you get people. And that's why at Chicago, they called it the music history and theory. It's like the farmer and the cowman can be friends. And, <laughs> you know, if you don't want to study the other, you're at the wrong school.
2: Shall we rapid fire? Let's rapid, <gasps> rapid fire. Uh oh. Probably rapid fire. This has been great. We really appreciate it.
1: Sure. No, it's been great for me too. Thanks.
0: I can tell Joyce because she's, lis- she's listened to
2: a lot of the podcasts. Yeah. So she knows how. What, so what she
0: be. she's kind of knows what to expect here. Uh, so I'm glad we shook this up completely. and are going to do something completely different.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: First, <laughs> no, no, new, really.
2: uh, new format.
0: We, we, we wouldn't do that to you. You know how this works. So <laughs> we'll, we'll ask you 10 questions. We'll, we'll trade off and um, give us. Give us your best and, and we will we will, you know, comment and judge as, yes, as you have heard us do.
3: That's fine.
0: She can take it. Oh, she can take right, it. That's right, because I, I know, grew up as a musician.
1: It. It's all about judging. Right. you playing for committees and stuff. So
2: far away. Yeah, bring it on. All right. <laughs> best work of history you've read recently. Oh no.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Anything. Oh my goodness. I I can't.
0: While well, she didn't prepare.
1: Oh my God. I take a pass because I didn't think you were going to ask me that. I thought, oh, they'll
2: ask me a different question because I'm not a historian. Okay. Well, what if we come back around to it? Cut that part out. <laughs> okay. Best book on something other than history that you've read recently? Recently.
1: Yep. Right now, I'm reading a biography of John Jacob Niles that I'm enjoying. Um, it's actually something I was involved with because it was published by Kentucky and I knew the author Ron Penn. And do yeah. you know Niles at all? He he, no. um, he was a folk music collector, I guess you would say, and performer. He was kind of in the vein of somebody like Burl Ives. Um, and so he wasn't one of those purest kind of musicologist folklorists where you were very, um, accurate to make sure that you present the original material. You know, it's more kind of anthropological.
0: So, so not of the Chicago School.
1: No. I, okay, I see you're making a you joke. Okay. Now <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he was a performer. He he was trained as an opera singer, so he had a kind of a theatrical way of presenting these. And but he's very very interesting person from Kentucky, from Louisville originally, and it's it's a really. Interesting book, and I'm having a lot of fun reading it.
2: Okay, um, I'm going to uh, replace. We're gonna, uh, with Bill's permission, we're gonna do away with best work of history you've read recently, and I'm just gonna give you another one. A second question off the top of my head right now: Should the University of Kansas have a football team?
1: I would say yes. <laughs> that's, I'm not, a fan. that's not. That's uh, not. Not a the lot ringing, of, uh,
2: endorsement. <laughs> ringing endorsement. Ringing
3: endorsement. I, I would say, say like... yes.
1: <laughs> I'm a fan, and I. You know, every season it's like go team. Um, part of it is just underdog. I mean, I'm a basketball fan, KU yeah. basketball fan too, but it's just fun to root for a team. That's not the big, you know, the one everybody knows. So yeah, I'd say they, they should. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next season. Damn it. We,
0: we, right. we stumped, we stumped Beth Bailey on that. She, yeah. she was, she was not very, she was not up to speed on Kansas basketball as she should have been. Uh-oh. And I think well, see, Brian This is the why question. we
1: don't need humanities departments because his history professors don't even support the
2: sports program.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm I think her. the way Brian asked the question was, you know, Kansas Kansas football. Uh, the best is yet it?
2: to come or why bother? Yeah. Yeah,
0: <laughs> the know, best I'm yet to I'm definitely a best is yet bother? to
2: come gal, so. <laughs> All
0: right.
1: quote me on that.
0: All
2: right, Bill, you're up. <laughs> okay.
0: What are you and Reg binge watching?
1: He isn't, he's watching sports all the time
0: so he's watching six nations is on now so yeah yeah
1: that's his thing so what am i binge watching i'm binge watching stuff that i already know way too well the office and seinfeld i can probably quote you you know I mean, I'd be exaggerating if I said like a whole episode from memory, but but they're so delightful. And every time you watch one, you pick up new stuff and and Seinfeld now, too, even though I have the complete DVD set, um, I haven't watched it for a long time. So I'm watching these old uh, episodes on Netflix and just like, oh, yeah, this one's so good. And
0: it's amazing to see how many other actors came through that show. Yes. right. absolutely. Yeah, pretty wild.
2: Okay, I'm going to hit you with my favorite, uh, Michael Scott, and you fill in the blank, okay? All right, here we go. I'm not superstitious. I'm sorry? I'm not superstitious. I'm
1: a little stitious.
2: <laughs> there you go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that show. Oh. And you know what's really interesting? If you listen to the podcast or DVD commentaries for either one of those shows... So many situations in those sitcom episodes are from real things that happened to the writers. Even yeah. the woman in Seinfeld right. who wouldn't eat the pie, right? Or she wouldn't. That was one of the writers actually had that experience. You're like, no way did that really happen. But uh,
0: rewatching great. stuff is good. I we yeah.
1: yeah
0: we were talking with Kara Buick and the Detectorist came up. That 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 series from the UK and what uh, is it called? The Detectorist. It's on BritBox. I think it's on BritBox. Yeah. It Toby to Jones, like, uh, McKenzie Crook, got these it's guys making. out in the countryside in the UK with their metal detectors looking for, you know, the next, next horde, right? Next is gold. it a
1: reality show? No, no,
0: no it's just,
1: oh, a, a drama. it's just,
0: and you know me well enough that I, I rarely use the the term delightful, but, but it's delightful.
3: delightful. Yeah. Oh, it delightful. yeah oh. it's,
0: it's really nice. But now, see, I, that-
3: yeah, I think I've watched it two where... or three
0: times and and since we mentioned it last week, I'm like, I, I got to watch, I'm going to have to watch that again now.
3: Yeah. Um,
0: so the that's, that's all right. That's good. Huh. Okay, Madam Musicologist, uh, what is what is your latest music download? What are you listening to?
1: Well, I'm the kind of music person who, who always quotes Duke Ellington, who said there are only two types of music, good and bad. And he was right. He was dead right because... Pretty much any genre. So I say that as a prelude to my latest obsession, which is what they call library music. And it's not music to play at a library. It's a library catalog, right. commercial music that's used for, you know, commercial spots and background stuff. And I'm so fascinated by that right now. So that's what I'm listening to. There's a podcast, I or not a podcast, a playlist. And I think it's, um, I've got it on right right now, I think, Uh, KPM, I I mean, this is, I know I am on a podcast, but that's what the, it just says KPM, that was one of the companies and it's just these little, that that whole industry is interesting to me. It, It hasn't always been interesting to me, it's just in the last few years, there's that whole industry and it doesn't even include film music, that is constantly recording little bits of music for things for commercial use
3: yeah and people who
1: make their living doing that too it's kind of like i have a friend that she was my editorial assistant at michigan then she went out to hollywood to become a voice actor and i still hear in commercials you know she's 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 out there doing it and it's the same thing that there's a whole group of people who whose whole career is just saying have you ever thought of the, you know, I don't know. I can't even come up with it off the top of my head, but like doing, or like, like I was at a hotel at a conference once and it had a voice thing for the elevator going down. And you know, that's a voice actor who yeah. was hired to say that.
2: Right. So right. <laughs> that's, that's a good living. I don't know, yeah. Brian.
0: I think, I think Taylor Swift's starting to fade a little bit.
3: Yeah.
1: I can't, we, even... we had
2: a lot of Taylor Swift. I know did you have, did. Yeah. Right? We and, had a lot of Taylor Swift. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And it's and
1: not that of. it's not that I don't like Taylor Swift. I just it's not my just eh.
2: All right, well, something you are proud of, something you like. Um, book acquisition that you are most proud of.
1: Wow, you think I'd have a pat answer to that. Or one of the. Can I can I change the question a little bit to what book ha- has been most successful for
3: you? Sure Sure. Okay. because
1: I have a pat answer to that. OK, because I, I, I feel like like saying something about like the appeal of other books is almost like saying, you know, I like this child more than these or something. Yeah, right. I don't and know. I, like, yeah.
2: I knew when I when I came up with the question, I was like, this is like asking which one of your children is. Your yeah, child. I, but, yeah. But like um, for us, which which is our favorite pod so far. Right. Yeah. 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 It's a hard
1: hard one. A hard one. No, but the book I've been that was most successful was a cookbook. And I was at Kent state university press and we had a woman in Cleveland who said, I know all of the famous chefs in Cleveland. And there are some like, like, um, you know, that guy,
2: Michael, uh,
1: yeah, Michael, the guy,
2: the guy with no hair, who's on the food network all the time. Um, he's got like a place down in, uh, oh, that Cleveland like warehouse area where all the foodies are. Um, yeah. I know you're talking about. Yeah. That and
1: it's amazing. That's one thing that an acquisitions editor might not tell you, but I'm going to tell you for all the world to hear, is it's amazing how quickly you forget the projects that especially when you moved on to another press. You never forget the authors. But I'm, that, acquis- way I'm <laughs> that way
0: with students.
1: I'm that way with students. Semester's details. over. I don't know who you are anymore. Oh now, yeah. But but it's like the details. Just kind of, because you know I've acquired so many books since I've been here, I can keep track of those. But anyway, she came to us with this idea for a cookbook and she said, what I've done is I've asked each chef, if you had company coming over in an hour or whatever it was, what would you make? So it's not their signature recipes, which they probably wouldn't have given her anyway. So I think it was our director and our marketing manager maybe that I first talked to about it. And we were just kind of like, We'd never done a cookbook. I don't know. This sounds like it might work. And so we sent the proposal out to a couple people and they loved it. They had some suggestions. It was a it was a lot of learning from the ground up. I mean, like the copy editor. Um, we couldn't just use one of our stable copy editors because it had to be a cookbook editor. So the managing editor hired somebody that used to work for a food magazine and she had great questions like a recipe would say one egg she would say okay one large egg yeah never thought about that and so and then we you know there were photo shoots involved and oh my goodness it was a big production but by the time I left the press I think it was in its sixth printing I think it's in its ninth printing now it's just thousands of copies I saw it at Oh, where was it? Bed, Bath and Beyond, because we got we set up an account with them and it was at Bed, Bath and Beyond. It did really well. So she proposed a book to us. And here's a good publishing story for you. She proposed a a book to us a couple of years later. The book was the Cleveland one is in the in the kitchen with Cleveland's greatest chefs. And she thought, one
2: of those guys. Michael Simon, Michael thank Simon. you, and yeah.
1: Michael R- Roman is is another one that, that who's famous. And so she said, "Hey, how about in the kitchen with Columbus's greatest chefs?" And we turned it down, not how dare because, you. yeah, not because we didn't think you know she it was because Cle- we were near Cleveland right. and it made sense for us. But let you know, Ohio State University press should do Columbus. I don't know if they did or not, but
0: I think I there hope, was a um, problem of just not any. You Know yeah.
2: maybe there there's aren't that, any famous good food chefs. In, in Columbus now, but Brian you with know, Ohio
0: State, so we're giving yeah, a hard time. Ohio State, so. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, I have two ideas for coffee table books, and I'm scared to say them because somebody's going to steal them, but I'll, I'll throw them at you here. You tell me what you think. One is death row meals if uh, pretend that you're on death row and you get a last meal, go around to famous people, what is their death row meal? What would they choose as their last meal?
1: Dear well, Mr. We, Feltman, thank you we, very much for contacting University Press of we, Kansas, but I'm afraid this project falls outside the parameters of our publishing okay. program. We won't
2: we won't call it death row meals. We'll just call it last meals. Okay, here's the better one. This nah, one's this was better. Nah. I drive across the country, going into dive bars, and taking things taking photographs of things that have been written on bathroom stall walls, and I do a collection of. <laughs>
3: Uh, it's already been done. Poetry. It's already has been it? done. Has that been it's done? It's already really? been done. Yeah. No, go ahead.
1: no, go ahead. Go ahead. I want to hear what you do with them. It's a collection of collection of, of poetry from
2: bathroom stalls.
1: No, and I'll tell you why. Not necessarily that it's a bad idea, but it's a bad idea. But sorry, Brian, I'm gonna be blunt <laughs> with you.
2: But Not the first time a publisher has told. There me are
1: much. lots of people who will say and who've said to me many times over the years. Dear Ms. Harrison, I have a book idea. I have photographs of, you know, say, okay, here's here's one. And I, if the author is listening, I love you, but but this is the deal. Have you ever heard of Lustron homes? I think it's spelled, it's pronounced Lustron, L-U-S-T-R-O-N. Kind of a mid yeah, we talked about this prefab home. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And they're all over, all over the country, I think. Maybe I don't know. Like a post post war thing. And he wanted, he was pitching a book, this wasn't at this press, a book of photographs of people sitting in the, in the in, insides of their, inside of their lustron home. Well, his he's very good, very talented photographer and the photographs were okay, but it's like, make a website out of it. And that's, yeah. that's how it is so often with, well, there was a trend back in the seventies, I think, to publish, bibliographies especially in literary studies so it'd be like a bibliography of all the books on Hemingway and a bibliography of all the books on this and every once in a while you'll get a proposal an editor will get a proposal for something like that it's like put it on a website it's,
3: yeah
0: those are dated before they even
3: yeah write. and they're dated right yeah but some so, people come
0: up with brilliant stuff like one of the coolest things I, I saw and I got it years ago like uh, it was a coffee table book of outhouses in the west like, that's you know, behind good. old cabins and churches and things like that. It was really cool. And then yeah, I like my bedroom uh, idea a lot better. The, the Bitter Southerner, they, they've got one on, uh, it's, it's scenes, it's like photographs taken from inside a Waffle House looking out. Yeah,
2: that is okay. good.
3: Yeah. So
0: what that's the scene is outside a Waffle House. Okay. All over the, yeah. all over wherever there are Waffle
1: House. Okay. That's interesting, but a book, I mean. Yeah. It's it's a coffee table book. Yeah, well, that's why the Seinfeld thing about the coffee table book about coffee tables, right? Was, was, it was brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> All yeah, publishers talk about brilliant. that for yeah. weeks afterward.
0: I don't know. Nice try, Brian. I got. to i okay, gotta get. I'll get us out of this rut that we. Found I mean, out
1: when to. you think about how expensive it is to <laughs> publish a book like that, versus you know what happens with. Okay, one thing you might know or not know that's a big difference between commercial presses and university presses is that commercial presses will publish your book, but when the sales start to drop off, they could just go, okay, it's out of print now. Yeah. And right. I've had so many authors sometimes literally crying to me saying, you know, fill in the blank commercial press is putting my book out of print. And it's only been out for a year. That's how they operate. That's, it's yeah. not that they're evil. That's just they They work on a different right. model. But right. university presses will keep your book in print nowadays forever, really. Yeah. And so I see these coffee table books as being like, oh, that's a thing that you give it to somebody for Christmas or whatever. And it's fun. Look at this book and everything. And, and then shortly after, you know, after a eight, eight t- 10 months, it's sort of like, okay, nobody's buying it anymore. Oh,
0: I, I, I like a coffee table book. I do too. I enjoy a okay. coffee table I'm, book. I'm getting this back. I know what to get here. you
1: all for Christmas. <laughs>
2: Who asks for extensions more often, authors or readers?
1: Authors. Really? Deaf? Oh, yeah. Far and away. And definitely during the pandemic. And, you know, only a, an evil editor would not grant an extension because a historian can't get to archives. And, but now readers, here's what readers do. The really polite reader will say, hey, I'm a little behind, get out a couple more weeks. But most readers just send it late. Very few actually send them on time. I always give them a week's grace or so. And then I'll check in and say, hey, how's it going? But And one thing, since I'm on a podcast and on a soapbox, I've seen it on Twitter over and over again. And I'm going to say it here too. If you are an author and you, two things, if you need more time, do not be afraid to ask for it at least with university presses. I heard a commercial publisher on a panel at the OAH said she would cancel the contract if you're late. So I'm not saying all publishers, but university presses. The other thing, what was I going to say now? I said, the one thing you should never be afraid to do is ask for more time. Oh, yes. And the other thing is, if you are a historian and working on a book and you're going, I just don't, I'm not feeling this. I just don't want to do this. Or especially... This has just kind of become passe. People aren't really interested in, in this anymore. Tell your publisher, I want to do something else because we don't yeah. want it if you don't have the passion for it. And it's certain, we certainly don't want it if there's no market for it. Right. So we're, we, you know, we want to do, as I said earlier, we want to do right by you. And we want to be sure that you feel free to communicate with us when you're feeling like, I had an, an author do that recently say, you know, I don't, I just don't. And it, it's a book under contract. And I was like, that's okay. You, you just do something else. Yep.
0: Okay. Uh, back into your wheelhouse. Dwight Schrute or Jim Halpert? Sorry? Dwight Schrute or Jim Halpert?
1: Okay. I'm not, I can interpret that question many different ways. Which I mean, one do which, you, which, one you which one's hotter Jim Halpert? <laughs> which one's more entertaining? Dwight Schrute. Okay. <laughs> as far as like the, which character I like more? Definitely Dwight. I mean, no question.
0: Okay. Fair enough. We'll accept all those interpretations.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's all a right. description well, right there. Some university pressure.
0: <laughs> I want to see that coffee table book.
1: That's a um, coffee table book, yes.
0: So will digital books ever become more popular than paper?
1: not in the foreseeable future long time ago um jennifer seiler whose name i now remember the the former director the now retired director at tennessee did a a master's degree and her thesis was on electronic publishing this would have been late 90s and she found that and this has been proven through the years that electronic books meaning whether I'm a Kindle or open access or whatever, actually drive sales of print books. And so I don't think there'll ever be a time, again, in the foreseeable future, when there aren't people who want to have a book, you know, a printed book in their hands. In the hand, yeah. To sit and read. So and gosh, almost my entire career there's been the you know, it's it's like so many other genres. And will this be, will this eclipse that, but, but publishing is not like music, for example, where you had, you know, the wax cylinder and then the 78 and then the LP and every, every technology is replaced by a new one. That's not the case. These all exist together. And I think that'll continue. And it just is a preference. What do people, what kind of formats do people want? And we should offer alternatives. So, I
0: mean, I've never been able to read stuff on a tablet or anything.
2: I just can't I can't, can't
0: do it. I can't. But can't I would do, do it decisions. if it's a
1: novel or something where I don't have notes to have to flip. Right. We'll
2: yeah, it. I make bad decisions though. I, I lost a ton of money investing in Blu-ray, so
1: um. Oh. I'm just kidding. I did. Oh, <laughs> oh, you did. Okay, okay. I take everything literally,
2: so it's like. But, oh, I, no, but I remember please. a time when everyone was like, "Oh, you got to get a Blu-ray player." <laughs> oh no, I've got
0: a, I've got a thing up there of just of like probably fifty Blu-ray, you know. Yeah.
1: Well, y'all are too young, I think, to remember eight tracks. Eight tracks. Oh no, I had eight tracks. Okay, that was going to replace, you know, be the the next thing. And
0: uh, yeah. I had Kiss, Casey and the Sunshine Band, and one of the Boston. Oh, no. ones on eight track yeah i think that was From the as a worst
1: kid. i don't know how and then they were, were
0: gone happened. um joyce okay w- let's let's halt for just a sec jo- do you need to shut your blind or something we're, we're almost got, done got the sun. But, but i'm sorry the, the sun's starting to there. it looks like you're you're trying to there. avoid yeah yes i am leave. i'm kind
1: <laughs> of leaning as the show's going on i've kind of moved like this. that's cool
2: that's all right cool. we got we got the final two for you here okay um more popular World War II or the Civil War?
1: Ooh. Speaking of just the United States, definitely the Civil War.
2: Really? Okay. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: All right. I, I kind of expected that, but uh, I thought maybe World War II would, would be able to pull it out. Um, okay. And the last question we, we give a lot of people you've heard this one before, I think. Um, we have a barbecue debate oh, the on barbecue. the show. <laughs> yes. And so, first part of the question, uh, barbecue, brisket or pork?
1: I would say brisket. Oh, I knew.
2: Wow. Yeah, that was, I was going to touch down. But you're on. from Maryland.
1: I, well, see, I, I didn't even know it was a thing, really, until, I like, I didn't know burnt ends were a thing until I moved to this part of the country.
3: Yeah. And
1: I really think I prefer, yeah, because I, I don't mind pork, and I even like like South Carolina barbecue the vinegar base i like them all so you
2: you lived in the worst part of south carolina by the way columbia columbia i'm a clemson grad so uh i i i'm I'm not a fan of columbia south carolina
1: oh really i
3: lived it there
1: (laughs) oh i really liked it a lot that was where the toxic boss was though
3: so okay she's she's not
1: in publishing anymore I, i hasten to add
2: now you've, you let me down on barbecue, um, in terms of brisket or pork, but, uh, what's your recommendation for the best barbecue in Lawrence?
1: Okay. So bigs B I G G is the bigger barbecue place. They have a big restaurant. They have a kind of an outlet, um, a satellite restaurant in the West side of town, but the barbecue i prefer as barbecue not necessarily as a restaurant is beamer's which is a little place across to the street from the Merck co-op on the busy intersection of um, 9th and iowa really good barbecue they have a little sit down area i don't know if it's open now or not of course it was closed during the pan- most of the pandemic but really good they're burnt All right. i think beamers. that's the one
0: beth recommended yeah yeah, yeah. We went to the other one, didn't we? we went, went to Biggs. Yeah. We went to Biggs. Because if you want, right.
1: like if I have somebody from out of town who likes barbecue, I take them to Biggs because it's a yeah. nice, you know, get a nice restaurant with a server and you have all the fixins, and it's good. But but Beamer's barbecue is definitely the the meat is is definitely better, I think.
0: OK, one quick bonus question. Oh. Artie Shaw or Art Blakey?
1: Oh, that's tough that's tough they were both so good I don't I mean that's so it's that's apples and oranges Bill. really I mean yeah they're both jazz but I can't I can't answer it
0: fair enough I couldn't either
1: yeah but that's I, why I, I mean, wanted to ask you about gray areas for the most time even though I've giving you a lot of flat opinions during this podcast so you know i'm i tend not it's like oh well like, but so but mm, that's i can't answer that you know yeah. you could say Artie shaw or benny goodman i would say Artie shaw that's
0: a better question yeah no, that's a better question i'll accept it was a flawed a flawed question because <laughs> i like them both too
1: yeah art blakey was the first i remember you know you get see questions on social media like what was the first band you saw in concert? Well, the first band I saw in concert was Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers in downtown Baltimore in the 70s. Wow. They are still alive, and they, it was just like, Very uh, cool. I just remember standing there going, wow, they're so great. Yeah, so.
0: I've got their Blue Note uh, recording mm. the album, and what's just super. Yeah. Really good. What do you think, Brian? It's all right? That's it. I think it's a wrap. Yeah. Joyce, Excellent. this was awesome. It yeah, was so much have, fun. Thank oh, we thanks have, uh... so much. I, we, we really appreciate your, I, I, we just, we wanted to do something a little different and bring in someone like you to talk about just just this other part of our, our kind of military history world, which is a huge part of it. Uh, yeah.
1: And it was fun because I've know. talked about general publishing before. I mean, not on a podcast, but in public, but I've not talked specifically about like trends in military history. And so that's fun. Yeah. No, yeah.
0: this was and, a and lot was of great. fun. Yeah. No, we really appreciate you taking and, the time. And we and appreciate,
2: you know, you've, you've been retweeting us and, and giving us support. So uh, oh, we recognize that and thank you for it.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, it's such a great show because you learn about all these different people and you get people like Megan Kate Nelson. I've not, I mean, she's not a friend of mine, but I've known her professionally for years, but I've never, I mean, it's just, kind of like we just did just sitting down and talking to her it was just fascinating and everybody that's been on because they're all from all different backgrounds
0: yeah it's been a lot of fun we've really yeah. enjoyed yeah, so it tremendously and we're, sure. we're having a lot of fun doing it in fact we were joking the other day that okay we got to monetize this thing so this can just be our job yeah <laughs> we can get out <laughs> but you know we, we it's i merch. think we you I, need merch yeah well we're
1: Working We're on working.
0: We're working. We're working on merch, yeah. but we need about twenty thousand more plays per episode. And
1: I
2: think yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, we got to build. The, we got to build the following up a little bit. Yeah. Well, even uh, to...
1: Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey, who do uh, Office Ladies, the podcast about The Office, even they add more commercials. You know, they started yeah. out just doing one, yeah. and now they do like during the whole episode they'll do like six or seven
2: Ooh, so wow that's, yeah it's a lot that's uh yeah, the I know seth, Ro- seth rogan has a story time podcast it's it's some of it's hit or miss some of them are really funny some of them aren't but the first 15 minutes is just a string of advertisements yeah and i'm like all right i get that you drink Lacroix. that's you know that's, that's my, <laughs> <laughs> my <laughs> there guy there you go there you are yeah <laughs> i quoted
1: seth rogan in the podcast i should have <laughs> said and he's a fan of them. Yeah. available at your local Collins <laughs> grocery store.
2: As I said during during the podcast, you know, one of the most useful things that she said is, is it's it's not just always about making a contribution, it's about uh, whether or not it's going to sell and that's there's a uh,
0: lot of factors. Yeah, it's yeah. a harsh and
2: reality because uh, you know we we we'd hate to think that commercialism has crept crept into what we do um, to that extent, but it's reality. You know, the uh, presses aren't getting funding from from states like they used to, and so they've they've got to pay their bills.
0: And I think it, it'll be helpful, especially for newer scholars who haven't gone through this process yet or are going through it. You know, to use the cliches, it peels back the onion a little bit. You know, clears yeah. up some of the fog. I, I know. You know, I've been fortunate enough to, to do a few books, but, but working with Joyce on modern war studies, I have just learned a tremendous amount, um, about how the presses work, uh, you know, what they look for, how, how some decisions are made and, and, you know, and we've, we've disagreed here and there, but, but generally we find ourselves on the same page as far as you know the content, you know, the subject, um, marketability, and stuff like that. So we've we've been doing okay. And also, what, you know, what unfortunately we have to say say no to.
3: And it's right. it's
0: hard, it's hard receiving a rejection letter on an article or a book you know proposal. It's you know you got to understand it is just as hard to be the one sending that. Right. It really yeah. is. It's tough because because we know and appreciate the work that you've put into it um and to, to be told that it's not going to work is is really tough and, yeah but that but that's part of the business i mean that's you gotta you gotta you gotta roll with it um yep. and, and keep at it that that was really really interesting and i got you know how she, she could what what you know, i wonder if she ever thinks like i could have been the concert pianist right you know whatever right. whatever or the musicologist yeah. and whatnot um and everything so she's really got a fascinating you know Background and just you know what what else she's into like like right. everyone we've talked with you know we, we're we're all into other things this isn't yeah, all, and, of, all of our life
2: and you know I, I think anyone who who gets a PhD you know there's there's more than intelligence there's a work ethic there because you just got to be willing to go through the slog do the work that's required yeah. and do it and so you know people we tend to be a group of people who uh, at least at some point in our lives have been pretty motivated and so not a lot of people when they're you know seven eight years old say i want to be a military historian so you get people who've always kind of had that that willingness to to go after stuff um and it's usually you know it's two cases now people who were really into music um talking to uh to jennifer uh you know she was a d1 rower um and so we've we've had i don't think we've had anyone who was just like yeah i sat around and read a lot when i was a kid (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, Lorian was in the in in the band at Kansas, right? Um, so right. Yeah, everybody seems to have been very successful at other things before they uh, they settled on becoming a military historian. So yeah, I,
0: I hope this was useful to to our listeners and and enjoyable. Joyce is just uh, one of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet. So if you're at this if you're at the Society for Military History meeting in Fort Worth, do not be afraid. You may approach the Kansas booth. Yeah. And you may speak with choice. Don't be surprised if she says, I can't talk to you right now, but let's make an appointment because she, right. she'll be very busy there. But don't be afraid. Always, always ask. And, um, you know, self promotion, I'll be there too. And I'll probably be hanging out at the booth some so you can talk to me if you got a project that might be appropriate for modern war studies. Please do. We're always looking and always uh, looking for new, for new things. So thanks, everybody. Hey. Push, push, push. Always, always retweet, repost. Uh, We really appreciate it. Uh, That's how we get more listeners. So keep doing that.
2: Thank you all. Um, uh, You know, we appreciate the support and we will see you next time. Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not B.J. Liederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.